0: Our scripture reading for the sermon comes from the book of Ephesians. We're back in Ephesians this day. If you would give your attention to this portion of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 through verse 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, Christ, Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. O living God, would you now help us as we have heard your word read to hear your voice speak with open hearts that we might truly understand and understanding that we might believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. You will, if you've been with us the last few weeks, several weeks, we are making our way through this Epistle of Ephesians. I can remind you as we begin that where Paul began, as he began this remarkable letter written to a local church, intended to circulate, we think, and it has made its way to Franklin, Tennessee. And he wants us to hear this grand story of our redemption. That's how chapter one begins, with what some regard as one of the most striking summaries, an unending display where Paul is stretching for words. As you read chapter one, it's like he's stretching for words to talk about the fullness and the glory and the extent of God's lavish blessings that are ours in Christ, in Christ that are yours because of him. And he follows that with one of the most eloquent of prayers, which we commend to one another to learn to pray that prayer in Ephesians 1 uh, for one another. But as he does, he has continued to talk about the lavishness. And when last time we were in Ephesians, we were looking at chapter 2, which begins with the fact that we were dead in our sins. And then that's verse 4, remember, but God. In, in light of our, our, our depth and, the, and, and desperate need, God steps in. Verse 4, but God in Christ has made us alive with Christ. We've been saved by grace. We are His workmanship created for good works from all eternity. That's what we've covered. And so when we step into this further, what we're going to find is Paul wants us to see what happens when that happens. When we have been made alive and and brought to Him, and then we sit with one another. What is it that happens when we look at the person next to us, behind us? The person in the other corner of the room that we barely know. What is it that God is up to through this work of Christ? to bring a dis, such a disparate people together. And oh, we are just that. We are not like one another. But when we look to one another, when we remember what Christ has done, what is it that God does? What we're going to see in this passage, what we're going to learn together today, is that walls don't have to be physical to divide And the work of Christ blows that wall away. Walls don't have to be physical to divide. And the work of Christ blows that wall, those walls away. That's what we find. And and the way Paul gets at it is he wants us to keep in mind what he's just said. And you know how I know that? Do you know how you know that? What was our first verse? Therefore, in light of what God has done for us, in light of the work of Christ, in light of the fact that our situation was dire and desperate, but God steps in, in light of that, how do we then move forward? You know, I'm ready to move. I'm ready to go forward. When when something gets put in place, we're actually ready to move forward. But what Paul is saying here is before you take a step, look over your shoulder at where you were the first thing that paul drives home in this section before us today is he wants us to consider who we were and what it was like before christ stepped in now paul is writing to gentiles he's writing at a time where there you would have been hard pressed to find someone a gentile who had grown up around this faith They were always outside, unlike Middle Tennessee, where it's hard to find someone who didn't grow up around this faith. (laughs) But but what we're going to find is what he says to people who never grew up around it. It is just as true and maybe, maybe for you even more true. Having grown up, many of us, around this faith, And we find ourselves in the same predicament as the people Paul is writing to today. What he wants them to see is: this is who you were, this is what you were like. We don't like to go there sometimes. Uh, I've I've met a number of people that have chosen not to go to their high school reunion. I just don't want to go back. I don't want to go think what that would remember what that was like. Paul wants us to look over the shoulder, our shoulder, and to remember where we were, what it was like. What was your hope? What was the trajectory of your life? What would you be like today if you had been there, stayed there, with that hope, with that plan? As desperate as it might have been and as hopeless as it was. Where would the trajectory of your life have taken you? And I would say that to those of us who even grew up in a church without any connection to Christ. Because that is certainly true and possible. Where were you before God got involved and opened your eyes and turned you around? What was that life like? That's what Paul wants us to consider. Because he says, therefore, remember. Remember at that time. Remember where you were Remember what that was like. And he gets specific. He wants you to remember. He wants us to consider the the different layers of our plight and our situation. One commentator calls these disadvantages. Another one calls them disabilities. We'll call them major problems. (laughs) There were major problems apart from Christ until God gets involved. And, And he lists five Try these on. See if these don't sound familiar to your own story. He says, remember at that time, verse 12, you were separated or apart from Christ. Separated, no connection. Christ was something that other people talked about or someone other people seemed to know. Someone else, that was for others. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth. The word that he uses there is the word from which we get our word politics. So there's, there's citizenry he's talking about. He's talking about being citizens of a kingdom there. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were, you were not, not only separate from Christ. You weren't a part of the, of the mix. You weren't a part of the citizenship. And then he goes on to say you were strangers to the covenants of promise. What are those? Well, it would include the promises that promise salvation. The one first to Abraham. Remember, I will, I will make a great nation of you. I will be your God. And then to David, your kingdom will be forever. And then to Israel at, at large, he says, like this one in Jeremiah 31. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, that covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the promise of salvation that you were strangers to until God brought you in. More to that in just a moment. But we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth. We were strangers of the covenant of promise. And he says, we were those having no hope. You know, from my observations, even when we don't have hope, we have to live like we do. We have to live like we do. And and until God does something in us and with us, We're hoping in hope that has no foundation. He says you were in the world without hope. It may be that what he's referring to, because he writes about this in Corinthians, about the resurrection. You know, you're born, you live, you die, and that's it. Unless the resurrection's true. And Paul writes in Corinthians If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied because that is our only hope. Having no hope and without God in the world. It's ironic that the Gentiles tended to believe in a plethora of gods. But Paul says you were without God. What is that about? What he's saying is that plethora of gods that you've revolved your life around, there's no God there. Those are ideas. Those are figments of your imagination. You've created something, just like you've had to create hope. You've, you've created some notion, and we don't even know his name. So he's an unknown God, Paul addresses in Corinthians. That's what Athens, the best Athens could do. To live and to worship, live around and for an unknown God. But Paul is saying that unknown God has a name and he has stepped into the world. We need to remember where you were, the trajectory of your life. Alienated, separated, strangers, having no hope. Christless, homeless, friendless, hopeless and godless. That's where we were. But God... Or the way Paul writes it here in verse 13 is, But now in Christ. Everything changes with that phrase and with that movement. Just like in chapter 2 earlier he says, But God has made us alive. Here he says, But now in Christ. Things have changed. And what we see here. Uh, what one, one writer says, describes this, what we're at, at right now, verses 13 through 18, as the centerpiece of this comprehensive reconciliation and the fundamental theological undergirding of the whole letter. You can decide if that's right as we go. But I think he's on to something. The more I look at this, that what Paul is doing here is he's unfolding that thing that he's called the mystery. He's talked about mystery in this letter. He's going to talk about it again. And he's talking now about the kinds of things that angels long to see and listen to. And when Paul begins to unpack the mystery, it's like the angels lean forward to hear the story of the mystery. And he says all of these things, the purpose from the beginning of the world... He's created a world, and he's made a world for us to live in, and now he's making a new humanity. And Jesus Christ is our peace. That's what he says in verse 14. He describes Jesus as making peace. Look with me, verse 15. He describes Jesus as making peace, proclaiming peace, verse 17. And then he goes through and describes five actions, five ways that Jesus does just that. Uh, Verse 13, you've been brought near by Jesus. You who were once far off, who've been brought near. The Gentiles were always far off. The Gentiles were always out there somewhere. And what Paul is saying here is what the Old Testament promises that, in, that God would be the one to bring near a people who are far off. You've been brought near by Jesus, verse 13, verse 14. Jesus has made us that is, both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one. He has, verse 14, broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. And you know, that does exist. It certainly existed between Jew and Gentile. It still exists. But it's true, too, isn't it, that even there are traces of that hostility that we read about and we learn about in other parts of the world that it's true here? And I'm not talking about our community. I'm talking about this community. I'm talking about the church. There are traces of hostility. Think about the people that you don't want to be around. Maybe it's because you don't know them. (laughs) But maybe it's because they don't seem to be your type. And what Paul is saying here is whatever traces of hostility, a lack of love, a lack of fondness, a lack of affection, that we tend to justify, that hostility is blown away by the cross. And the way he puts it is the wall of hostility is broken down. You know, we erect walls sometimes without thinking about it. But we erect walls. Maybe it's out of fear. Maybe it's out of we want isolation. Maybe I don't want to be with that person. And we erect walls. And I want to suggest, as I did earlier, that walls don't have to be physical to divide. In fact, the metaphorical kinds of walls that I'm talking about right now are sometimes more enduring and more destructive. You know, when the Berlin Wall fell, it was a great um, mark to celebrate. It didn't mean East and West Germans all of a sudden loved one another. It didn't mean all the differences were gone. What we're learning here from Paul is, there is a wall of hostility that we have erected that exists... That the work of Christ obliterates and removes. So that the people that are most different from me are very much like me where it matters. In Christ. Have you ever met someone from another country who shared your faith in Christ? Maybe some of you have traveled and some of you traveled a lot. But when you meet a believer in another culture, you find something there That makes you closer to them than some of your next-door neighbors here. Right? That's because Christ is the operating principle there. He is our peace. He is the one at work. Let me continue. We've been brought near. He's made us both one. He's broken down the dividing wall, the hostility. He's abolished the law that might create the one humanity. Did you catch the first couple of verse? Some of you are called the circumcision by the uncircumcision. You're called uncircumcision by the circumcision. They've got names for each other. They're name-calling. So do we, I'm guessing. It might be a denominational label. It might be a political label. It might be fill-in-the-blank label. But what Paul is saying here that Christ has done is he's broken down the wall, abolishing the laws, the laws that we've made, and in this case, circumcision and food laws, he has particularly in mind, I would, I would venture to say. That Christ's finished work has done away with these laws that you've erected to keep yourselves separate and fuel hostility while doing so, that Christ has fulfilled those laws. They're done away with. There are no more barriers between you. And all this, the fifth one, so that Jesus might reconcile both groups to God in one body. The hostility that they had with each other and the hostility that existed between them and their maker. That's what Christ has dealt with in the cross Peace for us in this world often seems a distant and delusional hope. But Jesus is our peace. This is hope for the world. This is hope for the world right here. Five distinct actions of Jesus that add up to peace. Each one contributes detail and texture to our understanding of what peace really is. Jesus brings us home. He brings us together. He breaks down hostility. He recreates a unified humanity. And he reconciles all of us to God. That is your hope. That's my hope. That's the hope for the world. Eugene Peterson says there's a lot of action that goes into making peace right here. And Jesus is the action. He is our peace. He is the one who accomplishes it. That's what Jesus Christ has done. Paul Paul uses that Genesis word, create, right here. Just as God created the world, here he is recreating a new humanity to live in that world. That's what he's doing in the cross. That's what he's doing through Christ. He's recreating a new humanity to live in that world. And one day he will renew that world. And how has he done all of this? How does Jesus Christ accomplish that? Well, in case we're inclined to miss it, he says it three times. This is done by the blood of Christ. In his flesh. Through the cross. That's what the cross is about. You can't really understand the Christian faith without understanding the work of Christ. And what Christ accomplishes. And what God the Father is up to in the cross. He's breaking down the wall of hostility. He's creating a new humanity. He's restoring and redeeming those who've been separated, isolated, abandoned and without hope. Bringing that body together. This is how Peter says what Paul is saying. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit." That's where we've been, that's what we were like, that's what Christ has done. And now Paul wants you and me to think about what we have become. That's verse 19 to 22, a crescendo of sorts. Uh, What somebody else says is perhaps the most significant ecclesiological text in the New Testament. Meaning, what is the church? Here's Paul's answer. What is a local church? What is the church universal? This is Paul's answer to it. Biblical hope is a mouthful. It's hard to get it all in one bite. So Paul gives us three bites. He gives us three pictures. And the first one is kingdom. Look at it in verse 19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, friends, are fellow citizens with the saints. You've come from one kingdom into the true kingdom, the lasting, the enduring kingdom. And, and that's something God has done to bring you from outside to the inside to take up residence. Some of you have been through this or you've observed it. On the 4th of July, it takes place in various places. We lived in Charlottesville, Virginia for a number of years and at Monticello, is where was held the naturalization ceremony for those that had been through the process of citizenship. That process of citizenship in this country is quite an ordeal, as in most countries and nations. But here, it requires several steps. Uh, The the website will tell you there are ten steps. I think there are more. As I read through the website and the process of naturalization, the first thing is that your eligibility must be determined. That is, you have to have lived in... One, one of those is that you have to have lived in the United States for five years or be married to someone who is a U.S. citizen for three years. That's where you begin to get, off the, get in the door. That's, that has to be established and verified. Uh, You have to prepare form N-400. You have to send in two passport-style photos. You have to upload the evidence and pay the required fees, which start at $402. And then there are others, depending on your circumstances. There's then the biometrics appointment. The Department of Homeland Security is involved. The FBI is involved. They're going to want to see your fingerprints. And between services, I learned, they will take a chest x-ray to make sure you're not coming with with tuberculosis. Then there's the naturalization interview, which you prepare for carefully. There's the English test. There's the civics test. And if you're denied at any point along the way, you may file Form N-336 within 30 days. And if approved, you take the oath of allegiance. And you receive a certificate of naturalization. And when that occurs on the 4th of July, right outside of Charlottesville, overlooking Charlottesville, Virginia, that ceremony, like many others, I suppose, are marked with tears. Marked, Marked with tears of joy. Marked with tears of Belonging. Of no more alien status. No more outsider living in the midst. But welcomed in with full rights of citizens. You've been transferred. Paul says from the kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. You are now citizens in a new kingdom with a true king. Who is eternal, he's just, he's merciful, and he knows your name. Does that ever bring tears to your eyes? Of the wonder. Don't let this notion of you are now citizens pass you by. But recognize that where you were, the trajectory of your life and mine. And because Christ is our peacemaker, the one who has broken down the walls of hostility, the one who has made you his and made you a citizen with him as the king, the true king, the one who knows your name, the one who is good and merciful and just, the true king that we long for, he is your king and you are a citizen with him. But Paul goes on to raise the bar because we're not just citizens, we're family. He says, You're members of God's household. You've been brought into the family, you have a family name, you have family status. It's not just that you have a Bill of Rights and a, and a voice in the kingdom. Your family, your members of his household. The way it worked in those days is when a son got married, he would return home and they would add a, add a room onto the house. And when children came, they'd add another room and made another room. It's a little bit like just this adding rooms on to accommodate the growth that the church is a family and we, and we grow together, sometimes physically across the street. <laughs> but we're growing together is the picture that he has. We're, it's, a, it's a family <clears throat> in, a, in, a, in a household that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Those are New Testament apostles that received the revelation from Christ by the Spirit that have formed our New Testament. Those, the, the prophets referred to here most likely are the New Testament prophets who would proclaim and preach. Those aren't the old Old Testament prophets. These are These are the New Testament problems, it seems. And all of that, built and teaching the truths that Paul is writing about, those apostles, that's the foundation of this church, the foundation of the building in which we're being built. With Christ himself, you saw this, right? Christ, who is our peace, he is the cornerstone. We don't miss that word around here. Christ is the cornerstone of it all. We're kingdom. We're family. And he says in verse 21 and 22 that you are being built into a temple. You're being grown into a temple. A dwelling place for God. Those are, seem to be parallel descriptions of the same thing. But Paul is saying there's a church that is, that is being formed and you're being joined together. Just like we had new members join with us today. Joining a church isn't getting your name on a list. It's, it's adding to... It is growing together. And when he says you're being built up and built together, you're not just simply coming together to occupy the common space or share a pew, but you're being built into something. You know, you have gifts. Paul's going to write about this in chapter 4 and a lot in Corinthians and other places, but that you have gifts. And as you use your gifts... The building is built up. The church is built up. We're being built into something. And what is it that we're being built into? Well, Paul doesn't mince words. You're being built up, church, into a dwelling place for God. Old and New Testament both. Temple was always a big deal. It should have been temple was where God met with his people. But sometimes it's referring to a temple in Jerusalem. Sometimes the New Testament is referring to a local church. And in both cases, most of the time, it also has a heavenly note to it. That when we meet here, the God who made this world and who reclaims us and has redeemed us meets with us and dwells in our midst. He dwells with us we're being built into. A dwelling place for God. Paul wants us to see all that. He wants us to live in light of that. Did you hear Paul unpack the mystery? At one time, but now in Christ, so then. That's the mystery unfolded. At one time, but now in Christ, peace has been made. He is our peace. He's brought humanity together, bringing those who look to him, forming them into a a new humanity as a dwelling place for God in this world and in the world to come. That's the mystery. That's where angels are saying, oh, that's what this was about. Did you also catch that every person in the Godhead is involved in this? We have access to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. What we once were, what Jesus Christ has done, and what we have become, or maybe I should say what we are becoming, because we are being built up. It is ongoing. And as we conclude this, I want to I give you some ways to think about Where this is working in your life. Think of it as a test. The first one is this notion of nearness. Brought near. You who were far off have been brought near to God. Is that your story? Is that a part of your story? That God in his grace brought you near. And there's an intimacy. There's there's a connection there's, there's no separation, but there's a growing intimacy with one who is near, brought near to Christ. Can you think of Christ as Lord, Savior, and friend because of the intimacy that exists? Second test is this. <clears throat> Are there among us any traces of hostility? Maybe it goes in the by the name of grudges or lack of affection. But where does that land in your life? Is there any hostility that yet exists? And finally, are we being built together? Are you using your gifts in the lives of others that we are built up? Or is this <clears throat> gathering a place you attend from time to time? Quick exits, quick hellos. Are there people here who know you, know how to pray for you, and you're being built together? A lot of that happens in home fellowship groups, men's groups, women's groups, youth group. There's all kinds of places where that occurs. I would urge you to consider <clears throat> what, what Paul lays before us. That we've been brought near. That hostility has been obliterated and removed. There's no more place or reason for that. That we might then move toward one another. Being built together into a dwelling place for God. Thomas Scott is, uh, was an Anglican pastor, friend of John Newton. And about this passage, he wrote this. If this is our experience and privilege, let us take care not to defile the temple of God. Let us desire His gracious presence with us and His influence on our hearts. Let us endeavor to fill up the place assigned to us to the glory of God. Pray with me. We are so needy and dependent, Lord. We are short-sighted. And we're grateful this day for the lavish love of Christ that you have shown and displayed to us. Thank you for your work of making us yours, of giving us yourself, of meeting us here, of moving us forward into the fullness of who you've made us to be. And Lord, would you show us what it looks like to to manifest the reality of one new humanity created in Christ Jesus, a witness to the world of what it looks like when you enter our lives and form our lives and form us together into the family of God, a dwelling place for the living God in in whose life and purposes we set our sights this day through Christ our Lord, whose name we pray. Amen.